Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadee Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our group learning program and we're finishing up with our three-part series on the Eightfold Path. Today's class is all about the mental discipline section of the Eightfold Path, which is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Over the course of three classes, I'm diving into detail in each individual step of the Eightfold Path because this is the core central teaching of the Buddha and everything else plugs into this. So in these three classes, you get this really nice overview, but yet a really in-depth understanding of the Eightfold Path. So then in the future classes, we can progress forward learning the entire Path to Enlightenment and you'll already have a perspective of what the Path to Enlightenment is because the Eightfold Path path is the path to enlightenment. This is your life practice. So the more deeply that you understand it, you'll be able to glean the understanding of what the Buddha is teaching and then practice it in your daily life. So we're going to be using the words of the Buddha so that you can actually see what did he actually teach in his original teachings. And then as I've always shared, you're not believing these teachings, you're learning them, you're reflecting on them to independently verify them, and then you're practicing them to be able to see the truth for yourself. So I'd like to welcome all of you, whether you're attending for the first time or you've been attending regularly, I'd like to welcome all of you to the class. You're going to be able to ask questions as we go forward by putting that into Facebook. Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom. Our moderators will see that and be sure your question gets asked during the class. Or if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So let's talk just a bit about what we've already been discussing in our previous classes, just as a light little refresher. And this can even help some of you guys that haven't attended the class in the past two classes. But if you haven't seen those past two classes, it would be wise to go back to the original classes, either in YouTube and Facebook or the podcast, so that you can learn the wisdom and moral conduct section of the Eightfold Path, because now we're going to move into the mental discipline. But here, understanding that right view is the very beginning of the path to enlightenment. You need to understand what is the problem in the unenlightened mind, what's the cause, the elimination, and the path forward. And in four simple statements, the Buddha provides for you what the problem is, the cause, the elimination, and the path forward. The cause of the discontent feelings is craving, desire, attachment, this mental longing and strong eagerness. See, in the unenlightened state, we tend to blame other people for our anger and frustration and sadness and other discontent feelings that we have. But you can learn in the Four Noble Truths and then you can reflect to independently verify and you can practice and see that any discontent feelings you're experiencing, it's actually being caused by your own mind. 
by accepting responsibility for those feelings and seeing the truth that you're causing them yourself, now you can actually resolve them. You can actually eliminate them. But as long as the mind has wrong view and it's blaming other people for the discontent feelings, you're making me angry or you're annoying me or that is annoying me. As long as the mind is doing that, then it's not going to be able to fix the true problem. It's going to have a tendency to try to control and force others to do things your way. So when you gain this wisdom of understanding right view and having this breakthrough to understand that you're causing all your own discontent feelings, now you can actually eliminate them. And that's what the path to enlightenment is all about, is about eliminating the discontent feeling. So you're going to need to deeply understand right view because this is like the trail marker. If you're going on a hike, you might have a trail marker at the beginning of the trail that says, you know, this trail is two miles long. You're going to walk up a hill. You're going to come down. You're going to cross a stream. It's going to loop back around to the parking lot. And this gives you an idea of what you're going to face on this hiking trail or this path. In the right view, the teachings on the Four Noble Truths is that trail marker. It's helping you to see in a very short time frame of what to experience as part of this path to enlightenment and how to actually eliminate the discontent feelings. And the fourth noble truth, the very fourth one, the last one, the Buddha is explaining that it's the eightfold path that is the path to eliminating discontentedness. So that's why a practitioner who's interested in getting to this peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy would deeply investigate the path to enlightenment and learn this inside and out, backwards and forwards, and even studying it multiple times and dialing in each one of these steps closer and closer. And with right intention, you're learning those three aspects of right intention, which is renunciation, non-ill will, and harmlessness, being uninterested in causing harm to others, and having an open mind to let go of certain false beliefs and misperceptions that the mind currently has. Then you learned about moral conduct, like right speech, right action, right livelihood, because as long as you're putting out harm through your moral conduct and being harsh and aggressive and bitter and hostile or causing harm through your speech, actions, or livelihood, then that's going to cause harm to others and harm is going to come to you. So it'd be very challenging to experience a peaceful and joyful mind and a very peaceful and joyful life. If you're causing harm to others, then harm is going to be coming to you. So this path to enlightenment isn't about just going under a tree and meditating somewhere and then emerging like, okay, I'm enlightened. This is actually not true. This isn't how the Buddha actually got to enlightenment. Yes, you're meditating and you're learning the mental discipline that I'm going to be sharing with you today, but you're also moving out into the world and you're conducting yourself in a way through your intentions, your speech, your action, your livelihood, and other aspects of this path to ensure that you're functioning in a way based on these natural laws so that you can now function in a way that's harmless and not causing harm to others. And you can still have enjoyment and you can still have lots of joy and fun and laughing as part of your life, but you're doing it in a way where the mind isn't basing its inner feelings on some condition. Because as long as the mind is basing its inner feelings like pleasant feelings, painful feelings, and neither painful nor pleasant on some condition, then it's only a matter of time due to impermanence that that condition is going to change and now your feelings are going to change. So if you base your happiness on the fact that it's sunny outside, 
Well, it's only a matter of time before it's no longer sunny, and now you might be sad or angry or frustrated. So this is what we call conditional happiness or conditional pleasant feelings. If you base your inner feelings on some condition, that condition is impermanent. So therefore, your happiness, excitement, elation is impermanent. As soon as that condition changes where it's no longer sunny, or your computer isn't working, or you can't find your shoes or your keys, or somebody says something that's disagreeable to you, then the mind's going to move to these painful feelings, this anger and sadness and frustration or other discontent feelings like that. So what you're doing on this path to enlightenment is getting liberated from these cravings, desires, attachments, these mental longings and strong eagerness, which is producing strong feelings in the mind. These strong feelings are hindering the mind and burdening the mind, carrying around this craving, desire, attachment. You can feel very tired at the end of the day when the mind is constantly pursuing and pursuing and pursuing, chasing after the objects of its affection, thinking that the next new shiny object around the corner is going to somehow be fulfilling. And if you get the objects of your affection, you get these pleasant feelings, these conditional pleasant feelings like happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria. But it's only a matter of time before those conditions don't exist any longer. And now you get angry or sad or frustrated. And if you have wrong view, you might falsely attribute these feelings to an individual or a situation. And now you push that person or that situation away. This is called aversion, where you overtly push away people in your life or you push away a situation because you think that situation or that person is causing your painful feelings. And this is the mind misunderstanding what's truly happening. And because of this wrong view, the mind pushes away and pushes away and pushes away. And eventually you find yourself somewhat lonely because you can't spend time with other people. You can only spend time with those people that you agree with. And if you don't overtly push them away, your conduct through your speech and your actions might become harsh and bitter and hostile. And now people choose to go away from you because of the moral conduct. And this is why the Buddha includes moral conduct as part of the Eightfold Path. If you don't understand how to speak and act and have a livelihood in a harmless way, then you're going to be causing harm to others and people are going to leave from your life and you're going to find it very challenging to have fulfilling and harmonious relationships. So this wisdom and moral conduct is building in such a way that now you can understand the mental discipline. And all of these aspects of the path, all these factors are being practiced all at one time. You're not mastering one before you move on to the next one. These are like eight individual dials that you're dialing in closer and closer and bringing your practice up more and more to what an enlightened being is going to be practicing. So now that you've learned the wisdom and moral conduct, and if you haven't, you can go back and look at those classes in the recordings. Now you're going to move into the mental discipline where you're going to be learning about right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Because the whole reason why the mind is experiencing anger and sadness and stress and anxiety, jealousy, resentment, and all of these other discontent feelings is because there isn't discipline of the mind. The mind hasn't been trained, so therefore you're not able to control the mind. You're not a bad person because you've gotten angry. You're not a bad person if you feel resentful or jealous. It's just that the mind is untrained. It has this pollution. And this pollution needs to get out of the mind in order for you to be liberated from these strong feelings. 
So it's the mental discipline that's going to teach you how to train your mind, not only in meditation, but also in daily life so that on a consistent, ongoing basis in your daily life, you're regularly training the mind. You're not going to be able to just meditate your way to enlightenment where you're just meditating. You'll need to meditate and build up your practice to two or three meditation sessions a day. But then as you are doing that, those qualities that you're cultivating in meditation are coming with you in your daily life so that now as somebody cuts you off in traffic and you feel the anger arising, you know what to do in that situation. The wrong answer would be to get angry and frustrated and start yelling and giving somebody the middle finger or something like this and then carrying that into work and not being in a bad mood and grumpy at work just because somebody cut you off in traffic. This mental discipline is going to teach you now and help you to understand what to do in those situations because you can't control the person who's cutting you off in traffic. You can't control the person who's being rude or disrespectful in their speech. You can't control that your computer is going to break sometimes and that you're not going to be able to have your computer work permanently. All of these things are impermanent, so you can't control this impermanent world, but you can control your mind when you train it and you have discipline. So this class is all about helping you to understand this discipline and how to actually get to the point where you can have the discipline of your mind. So this class is about helping you to understand the mental discipline. And we're gonna start with right effort. Right effort, in the words of the Buddha, are quite extensive, and I'm gonna read this for you so that then you can understand what it is that the Buddha is sharing in his own words. And then I'm going to break it down for you so that you understand what he's talking about. And we're gonna go through each of these steps, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, understanding the words of the Buddha so that then you can actually know what he taught and what he didn't teach. And then I'll help you to understand how to practice this in daily life because remember you're learning, reflecting, and practicing. And that's where the real transformation is occurring as you're practicing these teachings. So here under right effort, the Buddha says, in what monks is right effort? Here, monks, a monk rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to prevent the arising of unarisen, evil, unwholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to overcome evil, unwholesome mental states that have arisen. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to produce unarisen, wholesome mental states. He rouses his will, makes an effort, stirs up energy, exerts his mind and strives to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. This is called right effort. So these are called the four right efforts. There's four individual statements that the Buddha is making here. And I'm going to dissect this for you and help you see exactly what he's discussing as part of right effort. Because you're going to need to know this in order to be able to make your way to enlightenment. With the first aspect of right effort, what he's talking about here is preventing unwholesome mental states that have not arisen 
from arising in the mind. So if there's any unwholesome mental states that are not currently in the mind, the Buddha is sharing to prevent those from ever coming into the mind. Now, let me give you some examples here as we go so that you'll understand what we're talking about. You probably haven't thought seriously about killing another human being where you're going to actively go out, you're going to make a plan, and you're going to actually kill a human being. You may not have had that thought at this point in your life, and it's never entered the mind whatsoever. So the Buddha is saying prevent that evil, unwholesome mental state from ever arising in the mind. The second one is abandon unwholesome mental states that have arisen in the mind. So if you have any unwholesome mental states that have come up into the mind, the Buddha is saying take the effort to abandon those and eliminate them from the mind. Some examples of those might be if you're in a current relationship and maybe you've had a craving for sexual contact outside of your current relationship and you observe that craving coming up into the mind, you know that that's going to lead to unwholesome results if you go outside of your relationship and have sexual contact with somebody else. So where you see that craving come up in the mind, the Buddha is saying abandon that, cut that off, apply the effort to eliminate that from the mind. Or if you see this anger and frustration and irritation arising up in the mind or any other discontent feeling, the Buddha is saying apply the effort to abandon that unwholesome mental state, cut it off, eliminate it from the mind. The third aspect of this, he's saying produce unarisen wholesome mental states to arise in the mind. So just some examples here. Say that you learn as part of this path to enlightenment that generosity is a wholesome quality to practice, the giving and sharing of more than is strictly required in any given situation because this helps to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. Craving, desire, attachment, the mind's holding on and it oftentimes becomes very selfish. Well, if you know that your mind is fairly selfish, and that you don't have generosity in the mind, and you learn as part of this path that generosity is a wholesome mental state that needs to be arisen in the mind in order to get to enlightenment. The Buddha is saying take the effort to arise this in the mind, produce this generosity in the mind. Another example might be compassion. Compassion is the concern for the misfortune of others. The opposite of compassion would be like indifference. If you didn't care about the suffering or the difficulties that other beings experience and you were indifferent to their suffering and their unfortunate circumstances, that would be the opposite of compassion. So if you've noticed about your own mind that you're indifferent about how other people experience life, and you could care less about how other people feel or how they function in the world, any misfortunes that they have, and you learn that compassion is a wholesome quality that needs to be cultivated, the Buddha is sharing to apply the effort to arise this in the mind, right? So this is producing unarism, wholesome mental states to arise in the mind. The fourth one is to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen not allowing them to fade away and work to increase their growth in the mind. So you might have loving kindness or sympathetic joy that's currently in the mind. Loving kindness is the opposite of hatred or anger or ill will. It's a genuine interest in seeing beings be well. So if you notice that you do have this genuine interest in seeing others be well, then the Buddha is saying, apply the effort to support this, encourage this, allow it to grow in the mind, bring it to full perfection. 
or sympathetic joy. This is the opposite of jealousy and envy. Sympathetic joy is having joy for others' success, even if you didn't contribute to it. So where you see that the mind is jealous or envious, that's something that you are interested to get rid of. So you would apply the effort as part of the abandoning unwholesome mental states to eliminate the jealousy and envy, but you would apply effort to arise the sympathetic joy, which is to maintain this in the mind, bring it to full growth and full perfection. And these are the four right efforts. There's the preventing of any unwholesome mental states from coming into the mind. This is gonna help protect the mind. There's abandoning the unwholesome mental states that are currently in the mind. That's helping to purify the mind and get rid of the unwholesome mental states that are there. Any wholesome mental states that are not yet in the mind, you apply the effort to produce those. So that's bringing the wholesome mental states into the mind that you learn that are beneficial and helpful for you to produce this enlightened mental state. And then any wholesome mental states that are currently in the mind, the Buddha is sharing to apply the effort to support those, encourage them, not allow them to fade, bring them to the full perfection of development. And this is going to allow them to increase in the mind. One of the ways that I explain this to my young son is I say, anything that's unwholesome, kick that out of the mind. Anything that's wholesome, bring that into the mind and, and support it and encourage it and bring it into the mind. So this is what right effort is all about. Now, these are just examples in terms of killing a human being or sexual misconduct or generosity, compassion. These are just examples. The th things that are unwholesome that are currently in your mind and the things that are wholesome that are currently in your mind, that's gonna be unique to you. Everybody's gonna be unique. And this is where the next step of the Eightfold Path comes into play, which we'll talk about in a moment, which is right mindfulness. This is what's gonna help you to determine what are the unwholesome things that are in your mind? What are the wholesome things that are in your mind? So that then you can apply the effort to either abandon the unwholesome or arise the wholesome. But let me pause here and see what questions you guys might have on right effort. Again, you can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand electronically in Zoom and ask any questions that you like around right effort. It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay, so let's move on to discussing right mindfulness. And again, what I'm going to do is I'm gonna read this to you so that you understand the words of the Buddha related to right mindfulness and you can see exactly what he taught and what he didn't teach. And then I'm gonna break it down for you so that you understand what this is and how to actually apply it in your life. The Buddha says, in what monks is right mindfulness? Here monks, a monk resides reflecting on body as body, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on feelings as feelings, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on mind as mind, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, having put aside craving and worry for the world. He resides reflecting on mental objects as mental objects, dedicated, clearly aware and mindful, 
having put aside craving and worry for the world. This is called right mindfulness. So now let me help you understand what this is and how to actually practice it in your daily life. When you're first starting to understand right mindfulness, you can just think of it very generally as awareness of mind. This is a good way to just think about mindfulness from the very beginning. Ultimately, you're going to need to understand the four foundations of mindfulness and practice those, which I'm going to explain to you today. But you might just decide to think about right mindfulness as awareness of mind. Because if you are practicing to purify the mind and get rid of the unwholesome things and arise the wholesome, you're going to need to have this awareness of what's going on in the mind. Oftentimes when we're in the unenlightened state and we don't know these teachings, we don't really know what's in our mind and what's not in our mind. It just whatever comes out of our mouth is what comes out of our mouth because we're not aware of what's going on in the mind. So what you're doing as part of this path with meditation and other aspects of your practice is you're developing this awareness of the mind. Now, oftentimes this word mindfulness is used in common language, but people aren't necessarily using it in the same way that the Buddha used it. You might hear somebody say, can you mindfully carry this glass of water to the table? What they're actually saying is, can you carefully carry this glass of water to the table? They're not actually using it in the way that the Buddha used it. So even though other people might use the word mindfulness in ways that the Buddha didn't use it, it's important for you to understand what the word mindfulness means and use it in the way that the Buddha means it as part of the path to enlightenment so you can come to a deep understanding of all the various aspects of the path to enlightenment. What mindfulness is, is awareness of mind and being aware of what's going on in the mind. And you're developing that in breathing mindfulness meditation. That's one of the things that you're doing is developing this mindfulness or awareness of mind. More specifically, what right mindfulness is, is the four foundations of mindfulness. Here you heard the Buddha say, body as body, feelings as feelings, mind as mind, mental objects as mental objects. What he's describing to you here is the process of discontentedness arising in the mind and what you're gonna actually experience when discontentedness is starting to arise. Because if you understand right view in that it's craving, desire, attachment in the mind, these mental longing and strong eagerness that is causing discontentedness to arise, when you have craving, desire, attachment in the mind and you get the objects of your affection, you're gonna get those pleasant feelings. When you don't get what you want, you're gonna get painful feelings. And then there's these neither painful nor pleasant feelings that you also will experience, like shyness or uncomfortableness or dissatisfaction. But prior to the mind becoming discontent due to its own cravings, there's going to be these bodily sensations that you experience before the feeling actually comes into the mind. So if you've ever experienced like tingling in the body before you got angry or you felt heat in the face or you felt pressure in the head before the mind actually became angry, this is the bodily sensations. Or if you've ever experienced butterflies in the stomach, this is just queasiness in the stomach. This is what we talk about before the mind becomes shy. There's some kind of queasiness in the stomach perhaps. Or before you got stressed, you might felt like pressure on the neck or the shoulders. This is the 
bodily sensations associated with discontentedness arising. So if you are aware of these things now, then you know what I'm sharing with you is the truth. But if you're not aware of this, then you're going to need more training through breathing mindfulness meditation and to start being observant of your mind through mindfulness that you can start becoming aware of these bodily sensations before the feeling comes into the mind. Because once the mind starts going past the bodily sensations and now it becomes a feeling in the mind, you now have anger, you now have frustration, you now have guilt or shame or fear or some other discontent feeling in the mind. And once it's in the mind, it's a lot harder to get rid of it at that point. But you can still cut it off and let it go there as a feeling. If you don't address it as a feeling, it's going to be affecting the condition of the mind. Have you ever been angry for several hours or for a few days or maybe even a week or so, right? This is because you missed the bodily sensations. You missed it as a feeling. And now those feelings have affected the condition of the mind. And now for a few hours, a few days, maybe a week or so, you're angry about something. And then what happens is we form these mental objects. What a mental object is, is it's like a container. It's deeply rooted in the mind. And in this example, we'll use the mental object of ill will. Ill will is a mental object that's deeply rooted in the mind, and it has been created based on this process occurring, where when we were children, when we were just born, we didn't have ill will in the mind. We didn't come out of our mom's stomach hating other people or being angry at other people. When we came out of the stomach of our mom, it was just like, wah, 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 we cried. And then after we got calmed down and we adjusted to the impermanence of not being in this warm, wonderful stomach any longer that was feeding us and giving us everything we needed, we experienced that impermanence of coming out of the stomach and we cried and cried and cried. But eventually we let that go and we realized, okay, you know, we're in the world now and where's my milk? I would like some milk, right? Well, as we aged, we started craving things. We started wanting things. We wanted that chocolate. We wanted that lollipop. We wanted that new toy. And if we got it, then we got pleasant feelings. But when we didn't get what we wanted, we got those painful feelings of anger and frustration started to arise in the mind. And because of our lack of wisdom, we falsely attributed these painful feelings to other people. And it started to affect the condition of our mind. And we formed these mental objects of ill will. We started having hatred and anger and bitterness and hostility towards other individuals because of this container of ill will that's formed in the mind. And the reason why this is all occurring is because of our lack of wisdom and not understanding true reality and not understanding these natural laws of existence. So what the Buddha is doing for you here is he's cluing you in to the process of discontentedness that's occurring so that now when you're aware of it, you can actually take action to fix it and to resolve it. Because if you're aware of the bodily sensations that are arising and you know that it's about to become anger in the mind and these feelings are going to start to arise, well, you can cut off and let go of that bodily sensation so that the anger doesn't come into the mind as a feeling. Because once the anger comes into the mind as a feeling, it's much harder to get rid of it. It's kind of like if you were in a boat and you were taking this boat from the USA to England. If you're out in the middle of the water, 
the last thing you're interested in is for this water to penetrate and come into the boat because now you got a real problem to deal with. You've got to get this water out of the boat or the boat's going to sink. So what you're interested in doing is preventing this water from ever coming into the boat. And it's going to take effort for you to do that. You need to maintain this boat and ensure that it's got this protective seal and the water is not coming into the boat. So this is what the Buddha is explaining to you, that as you see these bodily sensations associated with conditioned pleasant feelings, painful feelings, neither painful nor pleasant, starting to arise, this is the mind's craving desire attachment where it's trying to base its inner feelings on some impermanent condition. And where you see that occurring, you apply right effort to cut that off and let that go because you're not interested in these unwholesome qualities coming into the mind. You're not interested in these feelings coming in where now the mind is angered and frustrated or irritated. But even that conditioned happiness, excitement, elation, it's eventually going to lead to sadness, anger, frustration, and others. So the mind is attempting to form its inner feelings based on some condition. And it's going to arise these bodily sensations alerting you that this is about to happen. This is like the red light on the dashboard of your car, that if there's a problem in the car, there's gonna be a red light on the dashboard that's gonna tell you that something's wrong to pull over so that you can pop the hood and you can look at what's wrong with the car. Well, those bodily sensations are alerting you that something is about to arise in the mind as a conditioned feeling and you would be very wise to cut off and let go of that bodily sensation so that you save yourself from having to experience the feelings affecting the condition of the mind and feeding this mental object and the more that you practice breathing mindfulness meditation and you become aware of these bodily sensations you can more readily with mindfulness and right effort cut that off and let it go so that it doesn't penetrate into the mind and produce these conditioned feelings. So you're essentially putting this blockade at the bodily sensations so that you're preventing those bodily sensations from becoming a feeling in the mind. And then this mental object of ill will, you're using something like loving kindness meditation to break that up, almost like a jackhammer. You're breaking up the ill will and uprooting that out of the mind so that now by you working the path in this way, you can get to the point where you've eliminated craving desire attachments in the mind. You've eliminated the mental objects which are causing the pollution of the mind. And now you can get to a point where you can experience things in life and there's no discontentedness that arises. So you'll need to go through this period of time where you're transitioning the mind over to being peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, where you're gaining the wisdom on these teachings and you're starting to put them into practice, but you're not going to be able to do it perfectly from the beginning. You're going to experience some anger and some frustration and guilt and shame and fear and these other discontent feelings. But more and more as you dial this in closer and closer and you see that these bodily sensations are arising, if you've been training two or three times a day for 30 minutes or more and you're doing that over a consistent long-term period, you will see these bodily sensations and you'll be able to cut them off and let them go there, saving yourself the difficulties of having the anger or frustration or other discontent feelings coming into the mind. Then it won't affect the condition of your mind long-term and then it won't feed these mental objects. So this is right mindfulness, is understanding the 
four aspects of the foundations of mindfulness of the four individual things that you're going to need to develop awareness of. Generally, mindfulness is awareness of mind, but more specifically, it's having the awareness of the bodily sensations, the feelings, the condition of the mind, and the mental objects. I'm going to be explaining to you next week the 10 individual mental objects that the Buddha identified that is polluting the mind. We refer to these as the 10 fetters. So those are going to be next week that you'll understand those. But right here, I would like to just be sure that you understand what right mindfulness is. So you're welcome to ask any questions through Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions you like about right mindfulness. It does not appear that there are any questions at this time, sir. Okay, so let's move on to talking about right concentration. With right concentration, what the Buddha is sharing in this step of the Eightfold Path is he's actually sharing with you the results of putting together all the various steps of the Eightfold Path and what you're going to start experiencing, which is called the jhanas. These are four preliminary phases that the mind goes through before you get to the first stage of enlightenment. So to understand how to practice right concentration, you need to look at other parts of his teachings. So just like in right view, he just pointed to the Four Noble Truths and then you go study the Four Noble Truths to understand what those are. He's doing the same thing here with right concentration. He's just explaining the benefits or the results of having put together the path in its entirety that you're going to start seeing these qualities of mind starting to arise. And these are called the jhanas. And then you go to his other teachings and you start seeing how do you actually practice right concentration. What the jhanas are, are these preliminary phases and various qualities of mind that you start experiencing as part of practicing all the steps that lead to enlightenment on the Eightfold Path, and you start developing this concentration. So you guys can read this. It's in the book. It's in chapter five. I'm not going to read it in class because you're not at the jhanas yet. It's not something that you need to necessarily learn, but I'm going to talk to you about it in summary form. This word jhana, it doesn't actually translate to one word in English, or I would just use that one word. The best way to understand it is these preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it gets to the first stage of enlightenment. One of the translations that you see that people will use is meditative absorption. And the reason why is because this step on the Eightfold Path includes meditation. This is where you learn breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation. And when you've been meditating and the mind has absorbed enough of your meditation and you've absorbed enough of the other teachings and you're practicing right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, you'll see the mind move into these jhanas, which is where the light bulb starts to kind of flicker. If you go into a room and you turn on a light bulb and it kind of flickers, flickers, flicker, 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 and then boom, it's on. And now it's on. That's essentially what you're going to experience as you're making your way to enlightenment, that you're going to get these glimpses, whether it's a few seconds or a few minutes or a few hours or a few days where you're experiencing the peacefulness and the joy in the mind. You're going to be getting these glimpses of what enlightenment is like. This mind is kind of flickering. And when you're in the jhanas, you experience that throughout your day where you experience a couple of minutes or a couple of hours where the mind is utterly peaceful and joyful. But then since the mind is not enlightened yet, 
boom, you're going to experience some discontentedness at some point. So as you're experiencing this flickering of the jhanas, this is an indication for you that you're putting together all the various steps of the Eightfold Path and that you're putting your practice together really well and you're starting to get these qualities of mind of the jhanas. And this is the time to then start focusing more closely on the 10 fetters. And like I mentioned, that's what I'm going to explain to you next week is helping you understand what the fetters are. But here with right concentration, let me help you understand what this step is so that you can actually practice it. And then as you're putting together all the various steps, you'll experience these jhanas and these qualities of mind that are starting to arise. And you'll know that you've been putting this together for a period of time that you're starting to experience these increased qualities of mind. The step of right concentration, it's to develop a meditation practice and practice singleness of mind in daily life. So this is why on Wednesdays, I've been teaching breathing mindfulness meditation because you need that in order to arise mindfulness, awareness of mind. You're gonna need breathing mindfulness meditation to develop concentration where you have the ability to focus on a single object like the breath and you're training the mind to easily let go because the mind is craving permanence and it's holding on to things. So when your mind moves off the breath in meditation and you're cutting that off and bringing the mind back to the breath, you're training the mind to let go. You're not training the mind to eliminate thoughts. This is actually impossible. Instead, what you're doing is you're training the mind to easily let go when there is a thought. So through countless meditation sessions throughout the coming weeks and months and years, you're gradually training the mind to arise this awareness, this concentration, and to be able to easily let go of thoughts when they arise in the mind. This is helping you to develop the mindfulness, awareness of mind, the concentration, or being able to focus on a single object like the breath, and it's training you to easily let go of anything that arises in the mind. So in meditation, you're training the mind to let go of everything that comes up in the mind. But even an enlightened being is gonna have an occasional thought. So you're not trying to eliminate the thoughts. What you're trying to do is you're trying to still the mind or quiet the mind and build these qualities of mindfulness, concentration, and to be able to easily let go. Because this is going to be directly helpful for you in terms of practicing right effort and right mindfulness. Because in daily life, where you see with right mindfulness, the awareness of mind, if you see certain unwholesome qualities come into the mind with your awareness of mind practicing right mindfulness, then you'll know to apply right effort to cut that off and let that go. And your mind will be able to do that if you're practicing breathing mindfulness meditation regularly. If you're not practicing breathing mindfulness meditation regularly and you don't know about the mental discipline section of the Eightfold Path, you wouldn't know how to do this. So if you're driving down the road and an unwholesome thought comes into the mind, you can observe that with mindfulness and then you can apply right effort to cut that off. And you'll be able to more easily do that when you've been practicing breathing mindfulness meditation. Or if you're in a conversation with your boss or your coworkers or your life partner or your children and you see unwholesome qualities starting to arise in the mind, then you can apply right effort because you have right mindfulness and you've been practicing right concentration to focus on a single object, you'll be able to apply all three of these steps to now cut off and let go of that unwholesome thought. And then when you do this enough, 
eventually you get to the point where the mind doesn't have any unwholesome thoughts arise because you've purified the mind. But in the process of transforming the mind, you're going to need to actively be aware of what's going on in the mind with mindfulness and then apply right effort to cut it off and let it go. And you're developing these qualities in meditation using breathing mindfulness meditation, and then you're practicing it in daily life so that while you're out and about in your day, you can have awareness of mind and wherever you see anything unwholesome arise, you'll know to cut that off and let it go. And you'll get better and better at observing that those unwholesome thoughts have arised because your mindfulness will get dialed in more and more closely. And you'll get better and better at cutting it off and letting it go by applying right effort as you're dialing in your meditation of breathing mindfulness meditation, building this ability to cut off and let go of thoughts as they arise. In meditation, you're cutting off and letting go of every thought that arises because that is your training. But in daily life, you're only cutting off and letting go of unwholesome qualities that arise. If something wholesome arises in your mind, like you decide you would like to take your kids on a walk, or you would like to take your family out to dinner, or you would like to update your resume and apply for a new job or something like this, these are wholesome thoughts. So go forward with that. You're not cutting that off in daily life. But in meditation, if anything comes up, you're cutting off anything and everything because you're trying to build this skill of being able to cut off and let go of things easily while you're developing mindfulness and concentration. It's the same thing that a professional athlete would do. If you're a professional athlete, you might train with cardiovascular, with weight training, with agility training, and different things like this. But then when you go out in your sport, you might be a pole vaulter or you might be an ice skater, or you might be a football player, or something like that. So your training is gonna look one way, and when you perform your sport, it's gonna look a different way. So it's the same thing with your meditation, a breathing mindfulness meditation, you're cutting off all thoughts because you're exercising the mind. You're training it to easily let go. And then in daily life, you're only cutting off the unwholesome thoughts. And then more and more, you'll get to the point where you've quieted the mind, you've stilled the mind, you've let go of all the pollution of craving, of anger and ignorance, and the things that we're gonna talk about as part of this program. And then as you've trained your mind in this way, now the mind won't arise any discontent feelings because you've purified the mind. But as you're getting a handle on that, you're gonna need to arise this practice of breathing mindfulness meditation and then carry those qualities with you in daily life of practicing awareness of mind throughout your day, practicing concentration throughout your day, and then cutting off and letting go of any unwholesome thoughts that arise. You're also practicing loving kindness meditation as part of this path to enlightenment. This is what's going to transform the anger, the hatred, the ill will. Loving kindness is this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well. I'm going to help you two Wednesdays from now in a four-part series to develop your loving kindness meditation practice so you understand what it is and how to practice it because you're going to need this in order to uproot the ill will out of the mind and it'll develop more concentration by getting rid of these mental objects and these pollutions in the mind. This is where you'll see the focus, the concentration, the clarity of mind, and the deep memory starting to come into the mind because you're uprooting the pollution and getting that out. It's the meditation that's helping you to do that, but it's also practicing in daily life the entire eightfold path. 
There's other specialized meditations that are used on a case-by-case basis, and I'll share those with you when we get to chapter 11 in the book. You'll learn about what those are. But at this point, you would like to be developing your breathing mindfulness meditation practice to gradually build it up to two or three meditation sessions for 30 minutes or more. And for some people, it might take you three months, six months, or even a year to build that up. You're not competing with anybody. You're not in a competition with anybody. There's no expectation of where you should be at any one given time. But just gradually work your way up to two or three sessions for 30 minutes or more. And depending on what your life is like, you might need to create some space in your life to do this. If you have a lot of children or if you're a single parent or something like this, if you have a lot of activity at work, it's going to be a lot more challenging for you. But more and more, when you see the benefits and how the meditation is helping to improve the condition of your mind, you'll be more interested in bringing this into your life. It's kind of like when you were a child, our parents had to constantly motivate us and remind us to take a shower and brush our teeth. Eventually, we got to the point where we saw the benefit in taking a shower and brushing our teeth. We liked the way that our mouth tasted. We liked smelling good. And we just chose to do it on our own because we saw the benefits in it. So the meditation is the same way. You need to get enough of this under your belt and accumulate the benefits that you appreciate those benefits. And now you build up your practice more and more. And you have a tendency to do this on your own without necessarily being prompted to practice meditation. So as you're developing your meditation, this is helping you to develop right concentration. But then you need to practice singleness of mind in daily life. What this is all about is ensuring that you're only doing one thing at a time. Oftentimes we're taught to multitask and we think that this is the way to conduct our life. This only came about in the 1960s when computers started being manufactured. Human beings started thinking that their mind could function like a computer chip. A computer chip can do multiple processes at one time, but a human mind can actually only do one thing at a time. During the lifetime of the Buddha, they weren't trying to do multiple things at one time in multitasking because it wasn't something that was going on. But nowadays, because of our modern technology, human beings think that they can actually multitask. So we might be talking on the phone, we might be watching TV, and we might be eating some food at the same time but our mind actually can't do all three of those things at one time. We might be talking on the phone for a couple of seconds and then our mind is rapidly switching to look at the TV and see what's going on on the TV, not fully understanding what the person is actually talking to us about because our mind is now focused on the TV. And then we might switch and rapidly cycle to the eating and start eating. And the mind is rapidly cycling from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. And now you might find that you're quite stressful. You might find that you have anxiety. You might find that it's very hard for you to relax. When you're at home and you're not doing anything, you might find it very hard to just sit somewhere and do nothing because the mind is trying to rapidly cycle from thing to thing to thing. You haven't trained it to just do one thing at a time and practice singleness of mind. So what you would like to do with this training that you're doing in meditation where you're focused on the breath as a single object and training the mind to focus on just one thing at a time and be peaceful and content and joyful while you're doing that, you would like to now move that into daily life. That if you're talking on the phone to a friend or a family member or a coworker or what have you, you're just focused on that conversation. Wherever you observe that the mind is moving off of that, 
because you have mindfulness and you observe that the mind is moving away from the conversation, you then apply right effort to cut that off and let it go and bring the mind back to the conversation. Or if you're in a business meeting and you're observing that your mind is wandering and you're not able to focus on what's actually occurring in the business meeting, you would like to cut that off and let it go and come back to the business meeting. Or if you're in a conversation with your life partner or your children or you're driving or something like this and your mind goes off of that task where you see the mind isn't practicing singleness of mind because you'll have mindfulness or awareness of mind, you then apply right effort to cut that off and let it go and bring the mind back to the actual activity that you're doing. Not allowing the mind to rapidly cycle from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing because this is detrimental to your mind. As long as you allow the mind to rapidly cycle like that, you're not gonna be able to be calm and peaceful and joyful because the mind is overactive. So the meditation is helping you to develop the ability to focus on the breath as a single object but now you need to bring that into your daily life that where you see with mindfulness that your mind isn't able to focus on a single object like a phone call or a conversation or a TV program or you're eating, you observe that your mind has wandered and now you cut that off and you bring it back to whatever activity that you're involved in. And this is helping to cultivate the mind and train it to have singleness of mind. Because if you're trying to practice something like right speech or right action, for example, and you're on a phone call, but you're also watching TV and you're eating, it's going to be very difficult for you to have that conversation with right speech because you can't bring forth your full wisdom in order to have that conversation and talk to this individual. So that means you're kind of partly in the conversation and partly out of the conversation. So now this conversation is probably going to be elongated longer than it needs to be. And then when you get off the phone, you're not going to necessarily remember what it is that you talked about. You're not going to remember what actions you need to take in terms of your phone conversation. And now you need to go back and you need to clean this up. And it actually takes you more time to apologize to your friend or your coworker. Maybe they're disgruntled because they knew that you weren't paying attention to them or what have you. So where the mind is thinking that it's saving time by multitasking, you're actually making your day a lot harder for yourself because you're not doing any one thing well. You're multitasking and trying to rapidly cycle the mind from thing to thing to thing, and you're tripping over your feet, essentially. You're not bringing forth your full wisdom and your full concentration to practice something like right speech, so you now need to spend more time to go back and clean this up. Whereas if you would have just had the conversation, maybe five, 10 minutes, you would have been done and off to the next thing, and you would have been able to handle whatever it is that you handled. Or if you would have watched your TV program, you would have been able to digest that and know that you had whatever experience you had there, and then you could move on. Or if you ate something, you could just eat and focus on eating. Where when your mind's rapidly cycling, you're not doing any one of those things very well, and you're just gonna have to take more time to clean that up. If you've ever been chewing food and talking at the same time, you know what happens, you start choking, right? This is the indication to you that the mind can't do two things at one time. Or if you've ever tried to do two things at one time and you tripped and fell, or you dropped something and broke it, this is the mind showing you like, hey, you can't actually do two things at one time. Just stay utterly focused on one thing at a time. And this is how you'll cultivate more focus and concentration 
yes, in meditation, but also in daily life by practicing singleness of mind. This is how you arise right concentration. And now you can bring your full thoughts and your full wisdom to any one particular situation. In fact, if you've been participating in these classes and you're listening to my voice right now, whether it's on the replay or live, you're working on practicing right concentration right now because you might not be used to sitting and listening to somebody talk for an hour or an hour and a half or two hours. This might be foreign to you. You might actually be surfing the internet while you're listening to me talk right now. You might be writing out an email or a text message. Your mind's jumping around. It's not maybe able to focus on just one person talking. And if that's the case, you're not a bad person. You haven't done anything wrong. It's just that your mind isn't trained yet. So by showing up to these classes, not only are you learning the wisdom of the Buddha, but you're also training your mind to have right concentration to be able to focus on just one person speaking and where you see that the mind is wandering during the talks that we're going to be having over the coming months where you see that you're not able to focus with singleness of mind you cut that off and let it go where you feel the mind craving to pick up a phone and start sending a text message or you feel the mind craving to search the internet and look at something else and try to do more than one thing at a time you restrain the mind you pull it back you cut that off and train it to just focus on the person who's talking so this is actually part of your training by sitting and listening to somebody actually talk and digesting that content and being concentrated while you're doing that so let me see what questions you guys have on anything that I've discussed here as part of right concentration. You can put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Yes, thank you, sir. Um, on Zoom, Alexo asks, can we use the breath as an anchor or sanctuary for the times when our mind becomes disturbed? Yes. So if you're training your mind in meditation and you're getting used to focusing on the breath and cutting off and letting go, and that's what you're doing in meditation, in daily life, you can do the same thing. So if you are in traffic and you really wanted to get through that green light and then boom, it turns red and you've got to stop and you feel this frustration coming up, you can close your eyes for a few seconds and start focusing on the breath and that can help you to resync the mind and cut off and let go of anything that the mind is starting to arise in terms of discontent feelings and you can do this at other things like say you're getting ready to go into a job interview and you're out in your car you can take a few minutes to focus the mind on the breath do like a little touch-up meditation for two minutes or five minutes or something like this, where you're just kind of touching up the mind and resyncing it on the breath so that now you can go into the job interview with a lot of clarity in your mind and you can perform better. This is one of the benefits of having a meditation practice that you can now use it at different times in your day if you need to, to kind of resync the mind. Thank you, sir. Um, also a question in daily life, especially because we know that we will be around people day to day who are not practicing who are not on path and don't have the understanding of these lessons even simple things when you're sitting at a table having a meal with another person how can that be handled when they try to have conversation with us while having a meal 
You can have conversation while having a meal, but you would like to do one thing at a time. So if you're looking at your food and you're scooping your food and you start eating your food, okay, you're chewing your food and you're eating. But now when you're done, now you talk, right? So you're not having elaborate conversation, like super in-depth conversation, but you're eating. And then when you're done eating, now you're listening and now you're talking, right? So you can do these things separately. But what I would like to add to what you're asking, Miranda, I thought this is where you might have been going as well. So that's the first part of answering your question. But another part of this is like you might be involved in a certain task at work or at home, like on the computer and you're writing out an email and maybe your child or a coworker comes and talks to you where normally you might have tried to listen to them and continue to type out your email. What would be better to do is either ask them to hold on while you finish your email or let go of the email and now focus on your child or focus on the coworker who's come by. Because if you try to do both of these things at the same time, the mind's not going to perform very well there. So where you see your mind attempting to do more than one thing at a time, you cut that off and let it go and you just do one thing at a time, whether it's sitting and eating and talking, uh, you just do one of those things at a time. You either eat or you talk. Or if you're writing an email, you either write an email or you talk to your child or you talk to your coworker. If your phone rings while you're writing an email, if you're gonna answer the phone, you put your email on pause essentially and you pick up the phone. Or you just choose to continue to write your email and you'll call the person back who calls you on the phone. And when you do this more and more readily, it'll become natural to you and you'll see how much more concentration and focus you have and you will never think about ever doing it any other way where now it might be a bit of a challenge to restrain the mind you might find that you want to talk on the phone and continue to write out your email at the same time but where you see this you need to restrain the mind and now train the mind to just do one thing at a time because you'll be more successful at bringing forth all your wisdom to do this including when you're eating with a friend or a family member or something like that. Yes, thank you, sir. There does not appear to be any more questions at this time. Okay, so let me help you guys understand a bit about what these jhanas are because you'll be experiencing these if you put together the path to enlightenment and you're gradually working all the various factors of the path and you're dialing this in closer and closer you'll start experiencing these different jhanas. And the words of the Buddha, he explains it very clearly. But what I've done here is I've extracted it and I've brought it into a way that you can digest it and understand each one of these jhanas. And remember, this is like the light bulb flickering and helping you to understand that you're starting to put together the entire path to enlightenment. The first jhana is you'll notice that you'll start distancing yourself from central desires. There are certain things that the mind is craving and longing and yearning for. And you'll notice that you'll start distancing yourself from those things, no longer longing and yearning and craving for those things. You'll start distancing yourself from unwholesome mental states. Like anger won't appear in the mind as intensely as it once did. It'll still be there. You'll still have some frustration and irritation and things like this, but it won't be the intense rage that you once had. There'll be this thinking and pondering. What the thinking and pondering is, is this is before you are on the path to enlightenment. I call it that we were just walking through the forest, running through the forest, knocking down all the trees, burning up the forest, and we could care less. We could care less what was going on. We were maybe just out for our own selfish desires. And when we look behind us, we have this long path of destruction behind us. Where now, when things are happening in your life, instead of doing that, 
you might think and ponder, right? You get a bill in the mail. Where in the past, you might have gotten angry and frustrated at this person who's billing you and saying that you owe them money when you know you paid them. Where in the past, you would just get angry and fly off the handle, maybe call up the customer service and yell and argue with them. Now you're thinking, having put together the rest of the Eightfold Path, you're starting to think and ponder. How can I handle this situation? There's some impermanence here. Somebody's sending me a bill. I know with 100% certainty that I paid it. I still have the receipt. Let me think and ponder about what's the best way to handle this. Let me call them up. Let me use some right speech. Let me get them the receipt so that they'll understand this. And you'll know that being angered and hostile isn't going to actually solve the problem. So you start thinking and pondering about the teachings of the Buddha and how to apply them in your daily life. And this is a process that you go through as part of this first jhana, and it starts to help you confirm the wisdom of the Eightfold Path and kind of more concretely set in the wisdom of the path where you first learn the path and now you start thinking and pondering about how to use the path in various situations and circumstances that you're encountering. This is the thinking and pondering. Then there's this excitement and joy that starts filling up the mind. The mind that is off the path to enlightenment versus a mind that's in the first jhana, there's going to be this excitement and joy. It's going to be very noticeable where you have more joy than you've ever experienced at any other time in your life. It's still temporary at this point. It's not permanent joy because you're still going to be experiencing discontentedness. But your discontentedness has diminished a certain degree and you have this more excitement and joy that's starting to come into the mind. The second jhana is where there's subsiding of the thinking and pondering. So that thinking and pondering that you were doing in the first jhana to really figure out how to apply these teachings in daily life, that is starting to subside a bit because now you've cultivated the wisdom that you need and now it becomes more effortless for you to apply the teachings in daily life. The teachings are more readily soaked into the mind, so it's more easy for you to apply them. So there's this subsiding of thinking and pondering. You're not having to do as much thinking and pondering because you have some more built-in wisdom. There's this inner tranquility and oneness of mind or concentration that is starting to be developed. The tranquility is the calmness and the easiness of the mind. The concentration is that singleness of mind, that focus, that clarity that's coming into the mind. But then you start experiencing this oneness of mind or this unification of the mind. What this is, is that in the unenlightened state, before you get to the second jhana, there's a conscious mind and there's a subconscious mind. And both of these are polluted in the unenlightened state. But the subconscious mind tends to be more heavily polluted than the conscious mind. Because consciously, you might have a certain thought that comes up in a conversation, but you're like, mm, no, I'm not going to say that. That's unwise. I shouldn't say that. I'm not going to say that to this person. That would be inappropriate of me to say that. But the conscious mind, this dirty devil so polluted, it'll send things up into the mind and you might just say something and blurt something out. And then after you said it, you're like, oh man, why did I say that? That was so unwise of me to say that, right? This is the subconscious mind motivating certain intentions, speech, and actions that you might do because you don't have this oneness of mind. You don't have this unification of the mind where you can see the entire mind. The subconscious mind is now polluting the conscious mind and motivating unskillful 
intention, speech, and actions. But by the time you've trained your mind enough and all the other factors of the Eightfold Path, and you get into the second jhana, there's no longer a subconscious mind. There's just this unification of the mind or this oneness of mind where you can see the entire mind in its entirety. You'll have mindfulness and awareness of the mind in its entirety. So this is what we call oneness of mind or unification of the mind where you now can see the entire mind clearly and there's no longer a subconscious mind. And then by the time you're moving more firmly into the second jhana, thinking and pondering is completely eliminated. It's completely gone from the mind. And the mind is still filled with this excitement and joy. Again, it's still temporary at this point, but you're having more and more excitement and joy that's coming into the mind. It's just almost there and readily available. And now the mind was moving into the third jhana, this is where there's the fading away of excitement because that's the conditioned feeling. The mind is getting excited based on some condition. So that starts to fade away where you're no longer basing your excitement on some condition. Instead, the mind is experiencing this unconditioned joy where there doesn't have to be anything that occurs in order for there to be joy. You wake up in the morning and it's sunny outside. You were already joyful before you saw the sun, but then you go take a shower because you're getting ready to go outside and go hiking. And then you see that it's raining outside, but the mind is still joyful because you didn't base your inner feelings on the fact that it's sunny outside. You also don't get upset when it's raining outside. Instead, the mind can just be joyful all the time. So this is the unconditioned joy that you're not basing your inner feelings of this excitement on the fact of the weather. So therefore, when the weather changes, you might just think, okay, well, I'm not going hiking today. Let me stay home and read a book. Or let me go to the mall and watch a movie. Or let me go shopping. Or let me go to a restaurant or something like this. You'll just change your plans because you know that this is impermanence, that it can't permanently be sunny outside. But in the unenlightened state where we're craving permanence and we really want to go on that hike, now the mind is going to crave this permanence and it's going to only be excited or happy if it can get the objects of its affection. So this excitement starts to slowly fade away where now you have this unconditioned joy that comes up into the mind. The mind is imperturbable, unable to be upset or excited. So you're not experiencing the extremes anymore of the high, high, high excitement, and you're not experiencing the lows of the upsetness or the deep sadness. Instead, the mind's coming more and more into the middle where it's now able to have these unconditioned feelings of joy and enjoyment. It's not experiencing the extreme excitement and the extreme sadness. Instead, it's coming into the middle and it's being more peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. It's not able to be shaken up. There's this calmness and this serenity. And this is all coming about because of the mindfulness or the awareness of mind and having clear awareness of the mind. Then there's this peacefulness that is starting to come into the mind, this equanimity. This equanimity is calmness and composure, especially in difficult situations. And there's this awareness of mind that's becoming more and more fully developed in the mind, where you have this full awareness of the mind. 
then the mind is moving into the fourth jhana, which is where you've given up pleasure and pain. What the pleasure and pain is, it's not the mean that you don't have enjoyment in your life. You're surely going to have enjoyment. As an enlightened being, you'll actually have more enjoyment than you will have had in the unenlightened state. This pleasure and pain that you're giving up is you're giving up basing your inner feelings on some condition that your mind has been trained so well that you start to realize that continuing to chase after the objects of your affection, sure, you might get pleasant feelings, but it's only a matter of time before you get painful feelings as well. And you start learning how to come into this mental state where your mind is beyond pleasure and pain. It's no longer experiencing the highs and lows, but it's beyond that. And you've decided that this is what you're going to actually do is train the mind to let go of this temporary happiness that is ultimately unsatisfactory and dissatisfying to the mind because it only lasts for a few minutes or a few hours. Instead, you're now moving the mind where it doesn't have craving, desire, attachments, and now you can experience this unconditioned joy. So this is giving up the pleasure and pain, no longer chasing after the objects of your affection. There's this fading away of the gladness and sadness where the mind is no longer basing its inner feelings on some impermanent condition. And this is where the Buddha says your mind is beyond pleasure and pain, no longer being shaken up by something like the weather or your computer isn't working or somebody cuts you off in traffic. Your mind is beyond that because you already know that this is going to occur. You can't drive in one lane and have that lane to yourself permanently. But that's what the mind wants. So when somebody moves in front of you, you might get angry or frustrated, but that's just because of the craving. So when your mind is beyond the pleasure and pain and you understand impermanence and you have this equanimity, this calmness and composure, even in difficult situations, now you can remain calm and imperturbable where you're not experiencing these highs and these lows any longer. And the mind has come to the full development and the full perfection of mindfulness or awareness of mind. So this is what you're going to be experiencing as you're putting together all the steps of the Eightfold Path, and you're going to be getting these glimpses of what enlightenment is like as it's starting to move through these preliminary phases. Once your mind moves through these preliminary phases, you ultimately get into the first stage of enlightenment. And this is really important to get into that first stage of enlightenment because as long as your mind's in the jhanas, this is actually temporary. These jhanas aren't permanent. If you were to say give up on your practice, your mind would actually regress out of these jhanas. You can experience certain qualities of mind in the jhanas, but then if you don't stay diligent and consistent with your practice, your mind will actually regress backwards and you'll go back to being out of the jhanas. But once your mind gets to the first stage of enlightenment, which I'm going to be describing next week, your mind won't regress from that point forward. You'll stay in that first stage of enlightenment and now you'll progress forward to the second, third, and fourth stage where the fourth stage of enlightenment, that's where the mind is actually enlightened. So in that first stage, there's no regression. But in these jhanas, 
You're not interested in getting bogged down in these because your mind can regress out of them if you don't stay consistent with your practice. So once you see that the mind is starting to experience these qualities of the jhanas, you start focusing on the 10 fetters and eliminating those. And that's what will move your mind into the first stage of enlightenment. And that's what we're going to be discussing next week. So let me share with you just kind of a little summary of what we talked about today related to the mental discipline section of the Eightfold Path. Right effort is taking the initiative to eliminate unwholesome aspects of the mind and to cultivate the wholesome qualities of the mind and taking the effort to do that. The work to get to enlightenment isn't going to just happen magically. It's not going to happen by itself. You'll need to take the effort to eliminate these unwholesome qualities and arise the wholesome qualities. You're going to need the initiative to do that. Then there's right mindfulness, which is awareness of the mind, having awareness of what's going on in the mind in terms of unwholesome and wholesome qualities, and having the four foundations of mindfulness fully developed, where you can observe the bodily sensations, the feelings, the condition of the mind, and these mental objects. And then developing right concentration, which is the practice of meditation, breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation, and then developing singleness of mind outside of meditation. Yes, inside of meditation, you're practicing singleness of mind to focus on the breath, but then also in daily life, you would like to just focus on one thing at a time. And as you're doing this and putting all these steps together, you'll start experiencing the jhanas, which are giving you glimpses and kind of the light bulb is flickering and helping you to see that you're putting together the path really well. And that's where you start focusing on the 10 fetters and now make your way into the stages of enlightenment to get to enlightenment itself in the fourth stage of enlightenment. And the teachings that you'll need in order to put all this together are all things that I'm going to be teaching you as part of this group learning program. The Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment, that very first book, it's going to share with you a bunch of content that's going to help you to gain this foundation and this framework to understand the path to enlightenment. Things like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, developing a meditation practice, and then experiencing these jhanas, and then focusing on eliminating the 10 fetters. So I'm going to be sharing those things with you and even more as part of this group learning program. We're going to be going through chapter by chapter. And what I would like to encourage you to remember is to never give up. There's going to be challenges. There's going to be even struggles and difficulties along the way on the path to enlightenment. And this is where the mind is doing the most work. This is where you're actually cultivating the most wisdom. What we've oftentimes done prior to understanding this path is when we meet with a struggle or a difficulty or some kind of problem or challenge, we will either run away from that challenge or we will fight or we will try to push it away, right? And we don't actually cultivate the wisdom that we need so we don't overcome that challenge. We don't overcome that obstacle. But by choosing to never give up and turning around and walking towards the challenge, walking towards the struggle and the difficulty, now your mind is doing the work. That's why it's struggling. That's why it's difficult. That's why it's a real challenge because the mind's doing the work to cultivate the wisdom. But if you run away from that, then you're not going to cultivate the wisdom to overcome that challenge. So where you're finding that you're experiencing challenges or difficulties or struggles on this path, you can reach out to me as your teacher. You can reach out to other members of our community and we'll be able to help you to be able to overcome these challenges 
because we've experienced these same challenges ourselves. So don't feel like you should run away from the challenges because that's just ensuring that they're going to continue in your life because the mind is not going to cultivate the wisdom that it needs. Instead, you can confront this challenge, you can overcome it, and now you cultivate the wisdom of how to overcome the challenge, and then it won't happen again because whenever you face that challenge in the future, you'll have the wisdom of how to handle it. But if you run away or you don't like the struggle, you don't like the difficulty that you're feeling, and you run away, you're not going to be able to cultivate the wisdom. So anytime you experience struggle or difficulty, just remind yourself, this is the time the mind is gaining the most wisdom, and it has the opportunity to understand and cultivate wisdom. And that's what you're actually going for. If life is pretty much a breeze for you, there's really not much motivation to cultivate wisdom to overcome challenges. But if you're finding that certain parts of your life are a challenge, like maybe you're having challenges in your relationships or challenges at work or other aspects of your life, those challenges are happening because the mind doesn't have wisdom and it might be struggling or having difficulties in those situations. So it's the path to enlightenment that is going to help you to cultivate this wisdom. And this is the last struggle of all struggles. If you can overcome these struggles that you're experiencing as part of the path to enlightenment, by the time the mind is enlightened, you'll be effortless. The life that you're experiencing at that point, it's effortless. You're seamlessly experiencing life. There are certain things that will happen in your life, but by that point, you'll have all the wisdom of how to deal with every single situation that you're encountering, and life will feel effortless. Where prior to enlightenment, there's struggles in relationships. There's struggles in various things that you're encountering on a day-to-day basis. And that's just because the wisdom isn't there yet. So by cultivating the wisdom on this path and never giving up, you'll be able to overcome those challenges and get to this point where the mind is peaceful and joyful permanently and you're effortlessly practicing the teachings. And now you can move about the world with ease. So this is everything that I plan to talk with you guys about today. I'll just open up to any and all questions that you guys have. You can put those into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can electronically raise your hand in Zoom and ask any questions that you like. Yes, thank you, sir. On YouTube, a student has a question. They ask, good day, sir. Is meditation seen as training and work, or is it a time to relax and be calm? The meditation is a time to train the mind. You're doing a dedicated, active, purposeful training session to either eliminate certain unwholesome qualities or to arise certain wholesome qualities. This isn't a time to zone out and just kick back and relax in meditation. That's not what you're doing. You're actively training the mind. Sometimes in meditation, that's what someone might think is you're just kind of you know, lackadaisically sitting back and relaxing, but that's not what you're doing. In breathing mindfulness meditation, you're focused on the breath. And anytime the mind moves off the breath, you're cutting that off and bringing the mind back to the breath. So you're cultivating mindfulness and concentration, and you're eliminating craving, desire, attachment, training the mind to be able to actively let go and willingly let go of any thoughts that arise. In loving kindness meditation, you're eliminating anger, hatred, and ill will and you're cultivating this genuine interest in seeing all beings be well, the loving kindness, which I'm going to be talking about in two Wednesdays from now, 
helping you guys over four sessions to train and develop your ability to train the mind with loving kindness. But you're not just sitting back and, you know, kind of zoning out and relaxing. That's what you're doing when you're sleeping. Or that's what you're doing when you're just sitting in a chair somewhere, you know, looking at the beautiful view or doing something else that you might do. That's where you just sit back, relax, and take in whatever it is you'd like to take in. But meditation is dedicated, active, purposeful training session where you're eliminating certain unwholesome qualities, arising wholesome qualities, and you're doing this in the seated, lying, standing, or walking positions. Yes, wonderful. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. And then on Facebook, Jacqueline asks, can you explain how is it possible to be indifferent when a man is beaten to death in the most violent country in the world? Because I, like many, are deeply affected by these events. Yeah, there's some people who might be indifferent about that, right? That that see those things occur and they might think negatively about that or they might say, oh, that person deserved this or what have you. So there's people that can be indifferent, but that's not what you're looking to cultivate as part of your path to enlightenment. But you're also not interested in the other side of that, which the Buddha talked about as part of right mindfulness, where he talked about craving and worry for the world, where you're holding on to the world, wanting the world to be a certain way. And you can only be happy if the world is the way that you see it in your mind, because the world isn't going to function the way that you want it to function. There's too many beings in the world. There's too many decisions that they need to make. There's 8 billion human beings. And then however many billions and billions or trillions of animals in the world. And all of these beings have their own individual mind. So they're making decisions on their own. You can't control and you can't force these people to do things your way. So if you were indifferent or if you were craving and yearning and longing for things in the world to be a certain way, then in both situations, your mind's gonna be discontent. You're not gonna have joy in the mind. So what this path is about is bringing the mind to the middle where you understand that these things do occur, that people unfortunately do meet with certain situations where they're beaten to death, or there might be people who are choosing to beat another person to death. And you will understand that the reason why this is occurring is because of craving, anger, and ignorance, or the unknowing of true reality. Any human being who beats another person to death, they're going to have a certain amount of craving, which is a mental longing and strong eagerness. They're going to have a certain amount of anger or hatred or ill will in the mind, inflicting harm on other people. And all of this is occurring because of ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. Individuals don't understand that their mind is having this craving and anger. They don't understand things like the Four Noble Truths. They don't understand things like the Eightfold Path. They're not working the path to enlightenment to transform the mind and get rid of craving and anger. So therefore, because of the ignorance and unknowing of true reality of these teachings and not understanding gamma, cause and effect or action and result, that any actions that they do, any harm that they cause in the world, that harm is going to come back to them. Because they don't understand what they don't understand, there's this ignorance and unknowing of true reality. Then their mind is continuing to crave. It's continuing to have anger. And that's where the unwholesome moral conduct, the unskillful moral conduct is coming in. And somebody is going to perhaps choose to beat another person until they die. So 
this is the unfortunate nature of the world that we live in is that there's many beings in the world that don't understand this path to enlightenment and one of my primary goals is to share these teachings as far and wide as possible for the rest of this life so that more and more people can gain understanding of things like the four noble truths and the eightfold path and others so that then we'll see less and less incidents that are happening like this because i think that you're probably talking about the five police officers that just recently had released a videotape in America about beating this gentleman to death, that these kind of things and others like mass shootings and things like this are occurring all throughout America. And there's even things like this that happen in other countries as well. This is all occurring because of craving anger and ignorance. There's no amount of money that's going to fix that. There's no amount of making new laws that is going to affect that and change that. There's no amount of convincing or coercing somebody to function a certain way. The only way that we improve society in terms of eliminating mass shootings and maybe police officers who maybe are being rough and aggressive or even uh, citizens are being rough and aggressive with police officers and things like this is each individual needs to choose to eliminate craving anger and ignorance, remove the pollution from their mind. There's nothing that you can do to convince somebody else to eliminate their craving anger and ignorance. Each person has to choose to come to this path and actively learn and actively reflect and actively practice to train their mind. So when you realize that, that you can't control what other people do, then what you realize is your work in this life is to get your own mind to enlightenment. And you realize that, yes, there's going to be these unfortunate circumstances where people are meeting with harmful situations, but you didn't cause it and you don't have the ability to fix it. So the only thing you have the ability to fix is your own mind. So this is where you can have concern for the misfortune of others. But when you allow your mind to worry about this, this is where your mind becomes discontent. That if you see all the problems in the world, then your mind's going to be worried. It's going to be discontent. But when you understand the path to enlightenment and the teachings that the Buddha shared, not only do you see the problems in the world, but you know the solutions because you've implemented those solutions in your own mind. And when you know the problems in the solutions, now you have concern. You can have concern for the world, but you have enough wisdom to know that you can't fix the world. When all you ever see is problems, because when we don't know this path to enlightenment, we typically just see the problems. And then we really worry because we have craving for the world to be a certain way. But when you know what the solutions are, which is each individual being needs to learn and practice these teachings in order to get closer and closer to enlightenment, and that's not going to happen in this lifetime, then you know, okay, what the real goal here is, is for you to focus on your own training, your own mind. You can have this concern for the world and where people need your help and they might be interested to understand this path to enlightenment. You can help them, but only when they're interested in your help. If they're not interested in your help, you can't help them. Maybe their ego is too high. Maybe they're disinterested in doing the work to improve their mind. Because in order to get to enlightenment where a being is no longer functioning through craving, anger, and ignorance, 
there's a million and one decisions that that person has to make. And you can't force that person to make those decisions. They have to choose to make those decisions themselves. So that's why as a teacher, I can put out advertisements on Facebook and other places that I'm having classes, that I have retreats, I have a YouTube channel, a podcast. I can share all that content into the world for free. But I can't force somebody to watch it and to understand it and to do the work to transform their mind. So we can share posts and we can let people know about the path to enlightenment, but they need to make the choice to actively progress and pursue the learning and education and then to actually do the work. So you can develop the mind where it's in the middle that you know that there's problems in the world, but you also know the solutions. And there you can maintain your concern, and that would be the middle. But as long as the mind is indifferent to people's suffering and unfortunate circumstances, that's not going to feel good for you. But also if the mind is craving and longing and wanting the world to be a certain way, that's not going to feel good for you either. So you'd like to bring the mind into the middle where you have this compassion or this concern for the misfortune of others. But realize that in order for them to experience better results, they have to make the decisions in their own life to improve their own life. You can't do the work for them. It's wonderful. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Um, I next is just Ambrose. Let's go to him for some questions. Thank you, Miranda. Thank you, Teacher David. Uh, I had a question over uh, the jhanas. When the mind enters the jhanas, it's like a false, uh, like there's um it's increasingly peaceful and um the uh mind gets kind of tricked into believing that we are maybe enlightened or whatever and the mind wants to take a break or uh not continue assuming that maybe it's reached enlightenment Yes, this is a common thing that I see is that when people start moving into the jhanas, they've put together enough of the Eightfold Path that they're starting to experience this increased qualities in the mind. They're not yet in the first stage of enlightenment or enlightened, but their mind thinks that they're further along on the path than they are. There's some people who are experiencing the jhanas who actually think that they're enlightened. So when you talk to people, if they might tell you that enlightenment, you're still sad or you're still angry. That's because they think that they're enlightened. They're not. They're in the jhanas. And now because they still experience a certain amount of anger or frustration, they might think that enlightened people still experience anger and frustration, but they actually don't. So if you move into those jhanas and you start experiencing the increased qualities of mind that are there, if you think that you're enlightened at that point, you might slack off your practice and then your mind regresses. The other thing that can happen in the jhanas, and I see this occasionally too, is that as people starting to experience increased qualities of mind in the jhanas, but the ego is still there. They think that they're further along in the path than they are and their ego goes up. And now they think that they're further along than they really are. And now it hinders their progress because their conceit and their ego, their arrogance and pride has gone up. So that's why once you're in the jhanas, you're not interested in getting bogged down there and thinking that you're enlightened or thinking that you're further along than you really are. What I choose to teach, and you'll hear this next week, is to never convince your mind that you're enlightened. Even when you know that you haven't experienced discontentedness for one year, two years, three years, four years, 
Don't ever convince yourself that the mind is enlightened so that you'll just always be interested in cultivating wisdom and always interested in being attentive to the mind. And if you see any aspect of the mind that is something that you would prefer not to exist in the mind, that you can cut that out and let it go. Whereas if at any point you convince yourself that you're enlightened or you convince yourself you're in the jhanas or the second stage or first stage of enlightenment or something like this, there's a tendency for the arrogance and the pride to arise. And now this is a huge obstacle for you to be able to actually get to enlightenment if the arrogance and pride starts to arise. So once you get into those jhanas, there's oftentimes, as I mentioned, that excitement. Some people describe it as bliss that comes into the mind. There's this bliss that comes into the mind. And people will oftentimes describe enlightenment as bliss or they'll call it unlimited happiness or something like that. But in reality, they're not yet enlightened because if the mind is experiencing this bliss, which I would describe as maybe euphoria, if it's experiencing that, then it's still in the upper side. It hasn't kind of tempered that and now having the mental discipline to control the mind. If the mind is running away in this bliss and this euphoria, then the person isn't yet having mental discipline to be able to control the mind. So an enlightened being, they'll have joy available to them all the time. It's really easy to smile. It's really easy to be joyful as an enlightened being. You're never in a bad mood whatsoever. So you wake up peaceful and joyful all day long, peaceful and joyful. You go to bed peaceful and joyful. But in those jhanas, there's still a bit of sadness. Uh, There's still a bit of irritation and annoyance and things like this. So if you convince yourself that you're enlightened at that point, then yeah, you could potentially give up and then your mind will regress and that's not what you're interested in occurring. So once you experience those jhanas, focus on the fetters and keep making your way toward enlightenment. And then even when the mind is enlightened, don't convince yourself that the mind is enlightened because at that point, there's a potential for arrogance or pride to arise. And if that arises, then you're surely not enlightened yet. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Yes, thank you, sir. Well, it appears those are all questions at this time. Okay. Well, what I'll share with you guys to close things out is just what we're going to be doing in our future classes, that the next class is about the four stages of enlightenment and the ten fetters. Because now that you've had this overview of the Eightfold Path and leading you up to understanding the jhanas, Now what a practitioner would do is start focusing on the 10 fetters and eliminating those. And then that's what moves into the first, second, third, fourth stage of enlightenment. You're not going to actually be doing this work at this point in time. What we're going to end up doing two Sundays from now is we're going to start off with chapter one of the book. So these first four classes are just to really get you started where you can see this overview. You're not going to be able to put all this together in a week's time or a month's time. So I'm giving you this overview so you can see the bigger picture. And then we're going to go chapter by chapter in the book and helping you to understand. We're even going to be talking about the Four Noble Truths again in chapter four. We're even going to be talking about the Eightfold Path again in chapter five. Uh, We're going to be fleshing out all of these teachings over successive classes to help you more fully understand. And then as you're progressing, even at the end of the seven months, you're not going to be enlightened yet. You're going to be gradually dialing this in more and more closely, but this is going to give you a first big dose of information and understanding of the teachings to be working in the direction of enlightenment. So if you're interested in starting to read the book at this point, 
What you should start doing if you haven't already is read the preface. This would be an ideal time this week to start getting your reading going where maybe 10 or 15 minutes a day, you are reading a little bit in the book. And the preface is a good place to start for this week. And then next week, if you read the first chapter, because two weeks from now, I'm gonna be starting the first chapter. And we're gonna be going chapter by chapter at that point, all the way through the 24 chapters in the book. And I'm gonna be gradually helping you guys to understand these teachings, but you're gonna to need to be doing the work at home where you're reading the book and you're doing your meditations and you're trying to dial in this eightfold path more and more closely, working on things like right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness and right concentration. And as you need help, you can ask questions in class, you can post them in the Facebook group, you can send me private messages, or you can schedule a personal guidance session because as you progress in this program, you're gonna to need to dial in these things closer and closer so you have these four ways of actually getting help. So be sure you're working on your meditation practice and then also doing the work outside of meditation to bring up these qualities of the Eightfold Path where you're practicing each individual factor more and more. And we're gonna be covering these as we go forward. This isn't the last time you're ever gonna hear about the Eightfold Path. And then in Wednesday's class, I'm going to be sharing with you the fourth class of the four-part series on breathing mindfulness meditation. And at that point, we're then gonna move off two Wednesdays from now into loving kindness meditation. And then we have the Pali Canon and English study group that just restarted yesterday. If you're taking this program for the very first time, it's very wise to just stick with the group learning program and maybe get your arms around that first and get your real foundation and framework going. And then after the group learning program, you might choose to kind of move into the Pali Canon and English study group. And you can really join that program at any time because that's a year and a half program. So you can actually join it at any time. There's some people who I encounter sometimes who have a, an exorbitant amount of time available in their life, maybe retired individuals or maybe business owners who have their businesses running quite well and they have extra time in their day. If that's where you are and you would like to do the group learning program and Polycan and an English study group together, you can do both of those programs at the same time. But if you feel like this is enough, what you're learning in the group learning program, then it might be wise to just stick with this. So the choice is yours, what you would like to do. But on Sundays and Wednesdays, I'm doing the group learning program here at the temple and online. And then on Saturdays here at the temple and online, I'm doing the Pali Canon and English study group. So you'll have these programs to help you. And then throughout the year, I'm also doing courses here in Thailand at the temple. And I also do retreats at various places around the world. We have some retreats that are planned in the USA for July and August. And there's an event that's at India in Nepal where we're gonna be going around and visiting the pilgrimage sites of the lifetime of the Buddha. And there's a retreat here in Chiang Mai in August. So all of these things are available to you. You can find the online classes and programs as well as the in-person classes, courses, and retreats on the website at buddhadailywisdom.com. And all of these things are pretty much being offered at no cost, except for the one going to India and Nepal, of course, you're gonna to need to pay for your travel arrangements and stuff like that. But you'll see all the details online. So you can gain access to all of these teachings and all of these resources pretty much at no cost. 
So as you have questions, feel free to reach out to ask for help and feel free to continue to attend these classes because as you continue to learn, your wisdom will just increase. And as you apply it in your daily life, you'll see that your life will just gradually improve your personal and professional relationships. So thank you for your dedication and your active learning. I'll see you guys in one of these future classes. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.